may be seated. Good morning. It's good to see you guys. This morning, good versus evil. The story behind every story. It's an epic showdown. Even this is the story behind the story of the film and of our culture. So think Tombstone, Wyatt Earp, Doc Holliday versus Johnny Ringo and the Cowboys. Good versus evil. Does that, does that hit anybody in here? Okay, three hands. Okay, it's good. You've got Frodo in the Fellowship of the Ring versus Sauron and friends. I'm just by myself. Harry Potter versus Vold... You know who. You know who. Even my childhood favorite cartoon, the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. You've got good versus evil. You've got Master Splinter with the four turtles versus Shredder and his goons. Every story has good versus evil. And, and I always tell my kids as they're watching something and they're despairing and afraid of when the bad guys are winning, I have to remind them, guys, the good guys win. Calm down. And even this, even this week, Bruce, our very own Bruce Ellison, if you know Bruce, he stopped by my office he did not know that this was my introduction, and he started talking about his favorite uh, Western, Gunsmoke. Does that touch anybody in here, Gunsmoke? And okay, I, there's a large following of Gunsmoke over on this side of the room. <laughs> and here's what, here's what Bruce said, unprompted by me. He goes, what I love about that show is the bad guy always got it. It's like, Bruce, you've just made the sermon, sir. Every plot line is inspired by this good versus evil. This is the story behind the stories. Christ and his people versus the devil and his minions. What do the good guys, why do the good guys always come out on top? Again, that's the story behind the story. Christ is the victor. He is the good. He is the champion. You know, this Christmas, my family and I were playing a game. You had to like start a sentence or finish a sentence and you had to write down a word and you're trying to just match one person for the maximum amount of points, right? Has anyone ever played this game? And round one went to my niece, Christy. She humbly won. She humbly accepted the victory. Then round two, we went into overtime. Me and my nephew, Luke, it was a showdown to the finish and I emerged on top. And unlike, thank you, Carl, I love that fist pump. I love that you're with me right now. And just the opposite of my niece, I humbly and quietly, loudly played We Are the Champions while singing to myself, right? <laughs> humbly accepting that victory. Christ, our humble but mighty victor, more, won more than a game in the wilderness. He started the process of saving us from the serpent and from the effects of the fall. What's at stake? If Jesus fails, there is no paradise for you and me. Everything is at stake. Heaven and heaven is at stake for us. If he succeeds, he'll create a new humanity. There is more than meets the eye in this glorious text of Scripture. Here's what we're going to do. I'm going to preach two sermons. 
because last night I was trying to edit out 3,000 words from this message, so you're welcome. I made this two messages. So we're going to set this up and cover temptation number one today, and then next week we're going to cover temptations two and three, and then the week after that, we're going to spend an entire message applying this text to our lives. It's one of the most important texts in Holy Scripture. So let's go to the Lord and ask for his help. God, thank you. God, thank you for this beautiful word that you've given to us. Thank you, Father, for sending your Son, Jesus Christ, to be the champion, to be the victor, the long-awaited Savior. Lord, we, for a long time, lived in the curse without hope, without knowing when it will end. But you've sent your Son in the fullness of time to come and meet this ancient serpent in the wilderness to defeat him, to begin a process of defeating him that we know that you will complete in the end. Thank you, Jesus. We ask for help, and I pray, God, that we meet you today in your word. God, I pray... I pray for help for me. I also pray for help for the hearers of your word. I pray that they do not resist, that not one person in here resists your spirit, but submit to you, God. May they hear this as your word and as your will, and may you bless the preaching of your word today for the edification of your children and to call those who are not yet your children to yourself. Thank you for the hope of this text. In Jesus' name, amen. Let me take a few minutes to set the scene. The context is so key. Here's the question. Does God have a son that will be faithful to him? That is a question you need to ask of the Scriptures. Does does God have a son that will be faithful to him? That's what we need to, one of the things that we need to see today. We need to compare. There's three things. Luke expects us to compare Luke 4 to Genesis 3. Because if you remember, the the text ended, chapter 3 ends with saying, the son of Adam, the son of God. So he has set the scene for us to compare Jesus being tempted with Adam and Eve in the garden being tempted. That's expected of us. So we're going to do that today. Also, what we need to see here is that Luke is expecting us to look at the 40-year wilderness temptation that Israelites went through with the 40-day fasting and temptations of Jesus. But we also need to look at, and I think we're expected to look at, the second generation Israelites post the Exodus, that when Joshua and, and the people crossed the Jordan River and had to expel the enemies of God from the land. I think we're expected to look at those. So we're, gonna, we're going to. We're going to spend some time on that. So compare. First, Genesis 3 to Luke 4. The serpent attacked Adam and Eve to distrust God's word and to worship and trust in themselves. Adam is God's son who failed in a lush garden with a full belly and every provision he needed met. Jesus, we find in the wilderness, fasting for 40 days in a wilderness where where everything would have been dead, the opposite of lush, with no provisions for his flesh. 
Adam. I believe we see in the garden, we see Adam as a prophet, priest, and king. What is he called to do? Adam is called as an image bearer to go and rule, to subdue, to cultivate the land. He's called to to be a priest, to spread the glory of God to the ends of the world as the water covers the sea, like priests are supposed to do. He's a prophet. He's to God shared his word only with Adam, and he is to send his word to his wife, to his children, so that the world knows God, trusts God, and obeys his will. So Adam, in the garden, he's, he is to he failed to subdue and conquer and remove the serpent from the Garden of Eden. He allowed the serpent to tempt him and his wife. He failed to remove that wicked serpent from the garden. And as a result, God's punishment upon him and his wife, they were exiled from Eden to dust, to ashes, to thorns, to death. But they were sent with a promise that there would be a child that came from their line that would crush the head of this ancient serpent. And in this text today, we, we see Jesus standing as the Spirit-empowered Son. He stands ready to vanquish the ancient serpent, the embodiment of evil. And this is amazing. The world had been waiting for this moment, for this showdown, since Genesis chapter 3. In the picture, I want you to picture Jesus here having his heel hovering over this ancient serpent's head. That's what's happening. Secondly, Israel. Israel is considered God's firstborn son. If you were to read Exodus chapter 4, verse 22, that's what they're called. He called. God called Israel his firstborn son. And they were called. They were rescued and called to replace Adam. They, they went through the waters of rescue. And they were to obey the Lord and to, to be like Adam. They were to be tempted. And they were just like Adam. They failed miserably and immediately. God had them go and spy the promised land. Remember, he had called them out of Egypt. The promise was, I'm going to rescue you from captivity, from slavery. I'm going to send you. I'm going to create a people out of you, a holy nation, my priesthood among the earth. And I'm going to give you, I'm going to give you the promised land. And so when the time came, they They went and they spied out the land for 40 days. And when they came back, they were terrified. They were saying, they're like giants over there, God. We can't can't displace them. We're like insects in front of them. Did they just not experience the exodus? The most mighty rescue in human history? They got a front row seat to the absolute power of God. And they forgot all of that. And they were complaining, saying, why did you send us out in the desert to die, God? And God, because of that that sin, said to them, you will not enter my rest. You will spend one year for every day that you are in the wilderness. Forty years, and this generation will die. And 
Your kids will enter into the promised land. God declared, you will not enter my rest. So Adam and Eve, exiled to dust, ashes, thorns, and death. Israel, because of their sin, failing to trust in God, even after this massive demonstration, you will die in this desert. You will not enter my rest. Now, enter the second generation of Israelites after the Exodus. They cross the Jordan River. Joshua, the commander of the Lord's army, what was he called to do? Displace the serpent from the land. To remove the evil from the land. To be God's son that fulfills the calling of Adam. Did they completely obey God and get rid of all the enemies? They failed. They failed miserably, and they were conquered by their failure. It says, after Joshua died, that they didn't even know God or what he had done for them. And they worshiped false gods, and it led to utter disaster. And eventually, they would be exiled for their sin, like Adam, like Eve. Jesus now shows himself to be a better Joshua. These pictures are all coming together. Now, the very first text, the very first word in Luke 4, and Jesus. And Jesus. Now, Jesus. Let's not forget what we've learned, who we've learned this Jesus to be in Luke chapter 1 through 3. So far, Gabriel's word to Mary in Luke chapter 1. This is what Gabriel says to Mary He will be great. And he will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord will give him a throne, the throne of his father David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom, there will be no end. He will be called holy, Gabriel said, the Son of God. Zechariah, when filled with the Holy Spirit, he prophesies about Jesus. He is the God that has visited and is about to redeem his people. That is Jesus, who we see in this text. Jesus, as Zechariah calls him, the great horn of our salvation. Jesus is that mighty ox that wins our salvation for us. That is Christ that is the prophecy about him through Zechariah's lips in the power of his spirit. And what does he say? The great horn of our salvation that saves us from our enemies. From the hand of all who hate us so that we might serve him without fear and holiness and righteousness before him all our days, Zechariah says. He, Jesus, will forgive the sins of all who repent. He has come, it says, Zechariah says, he has come to be a light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death, he, the shadow of death to guide our feet into the way of peace. Enter the angels, heralding through the shepherds in the field by night. And unto us a child is born in the city of David, a Savior who is Christ the Lord. Therefore glory to God in the highest and peace on earth among those whom he is pleased. And remember, John the Baptist says, this is the man who will baptize with the Holy Spirit. He is the Savior 
of the world. And what does Luke call our attention to? He's the son of Adam, the son of God. So Jesus and Jesus is here, the the spirit-empowered son. And what does it say next? And Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit. Heaven was just torn open at his baptism, and he was anointed with the Holy Spirit. How thankful are we that it doesn't read, and Jesus was full of wickedness and sin just like the rest. How thankful ought we to be that it doesn't say, and Jesus, full of corruption, like every other leader, has failed. No, what is our Savior full of? He is full of the Spirit of God, and there is no room in his holy heart for any devils. Praise be to God. And then it says they returned. He returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit in the wilderness for 40 days, being tempted by the devil. Now, I don't want you to think poor Jesus. Don't think of poor Jesus minding his own business, taken by surprise, being attacked from the devil. No. The glorious truth, the glorious truth is that God initiated this situation. He isn't running. He isn't afraid He had come to earth for this reason. Listen to 1 John 3.8. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil. For the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. The reason. And I want you to think Genesis 3.15. The reason Jesus has come is to crush this ancient serpent in its beginning in our text today. It's beginning. It's amazing. One commentator says it like this, Thus Jesus was not portrayed as passively being dragged out by the evil one to endure temptation. For the initiator of this event was not the devil, but God. The picture is that the anointed of the Lord is on the offensive and led by the Spirit to confront the devil to conquer him. And I want you to say, he's in the desert for 40 days, fasting, being tempted by the devil. So I want you to see that there weren't just three. We are privy to three. But he's being tempted over the period of 40 days. We get to see three of those. It's amazing. We'll see one this morning. He was out there the whole time. So the spirit-anointed son versus the ancient serpent, the devil. So we believe that the devil exists. We believe that the devil is real. We believe that this is not a metaphor. We we believe that there is is an unseen realm of of, of a devil and his demons. We believe that there's an unseen realm, that God has angels that we are not allowed to see. We believe that he is real. And And Revelation 12, 9 and 10 tells us a bit about his character. So who is this devil? And the great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent who is called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. He was thrown down to the earth and his angels were thrown down with him. And I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ has come. 
for the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down. The who accuses them day and night before our God. So this text tells us two things about the devil. That he deceives the whole world. 2 Corinthians 4.4. 2 Corinthians 4.4 is a beautiful text that tells us about the, the evil of Satan. That he is the God of this age, blinding the eyes of unbelievers. Listen to this text. 2 Corinthians 4.4. 4. 1 Corinthians 4.4. 4. No, 2 Corinthians 4.4. 4. You know, I can't get the Peters or the Corinthians right, you know. It says, in their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the glory of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. He is a deceiver. He is, he is the blinder of the world to seeing the the glorious gospel of Jesus' glory. And then it says he is the accuser of the brothers. So he stands before God and accuses us because of our sins. This is who he is. Jesus calls him a murderer from the beginning. He hates God. He hates us. He is a murderer from the very beginning. And what was the devil's motivation for testing Jesus? Well, it is radically different than God's motivation for testing Adam, Israel, and his son Jesus. The Lord is seeking those whom he, who would trust him, whereas the devil and all desires Jesus and all to rebel against God's lordship. The devil has picked the wrong foe. He is about to lose his lofty position, crushing the head of this serpent. And he ate nothing during those days. And when they were ended, he was hungry. Don't you love that? Well, yeah. 40 days, he was hungry. It's clear that the father required his son to fast during this trial, during this time of testing. And I want you to see, I counted the days. Today is 41 days since Christmas. So think about that. Almost six weeks Jesus fasted. He would have broken fast today if he started fasting on Christmas. This is a long trial. That's how long Jesus fasted for. Most of us would have had 120, 120 meals by now. And some of you fourth mealers, you know who you are, we're at 160. Some of you of uh, second breakfasts, first dinner, you know, you do the math. Like there's a lot of, there's a lot of meals going on between Christmas and now, the scene is set. And you know, I, I've complained a lot about my elimination diet that I had to go through these, these 90 days uh, to fix, figure out what's wrong with me. I've had a lot of like steak and potatoes, you know, poor me. <laughs> and as I was studying this text, this is real, I was like, do I tell them this? I'm like, I got to. I was studying literally at the moment of studying this fast that Jesus did while destroying chips and salsa in my office. To like wipe crumbs off my face. I'm like, I'm not the hero. <laughs> you know, like, <laughs> it's just like an ironic moment. Like, yeah, okay, all right. <laughs> the scene is set. This cosmic showdown, a cosmic boxing match is about to begin. 
You know, who could beat Mike Tyson in his prime? You know, if you ever watch all these old videos, he was a scary dude, right? You like, you ever see these videos of his like uh, greatest knockouts? And I remember one of these guys, I, I mean, they would stare him down and you would see on the video, I've just lost. They want to leave. If it was acceptable, they would not have stayed in the ring, but they had to. And I remember the shortest fight he ever had was 30 seconds against Marvis Frazier, the son of Smokin' Joe Frazier. And my favorite Mike Tyson quote, I say it all the time, but he was responding to somebody that said, I have a plan, I know Mike's weakness, I'm going to knock him out. You know what he said? Without hesitation, everybody has a plan until they get punched in the face. <laughs> That's a really great quote. And it applies to so many things in life. Satan has a plan to dethrone God's son. Satan seems to be the one throwing the punches, but he's the one that's about to be knocked out. So round one, depend upon yourself, not your father. Verses three and four, follow along with me. The devil said to him, if you are the son of God, command this stone to become bread. And Jesus answered him, it is written, Man shall not live by bread alone. So what's the temptation here? To wait, up, don't wait upon God, Jesus. Trust me. You can trust yourself. Don't, don't wait on God. Trust, trust me, Jesus. You can trust yourself. This is a temptation that is unique to Jesus because, listen, he's not simply a man. And you don't have the power, I don't have the power to turn a stone into bread. Could you imagine if we had that power? You know how big we would be? If we had the power to just turn rocks into candy or pie or pizza? I miss pizza. Anyway, moving on. Why do I sidetrack myself with food all the time? So he is not simply a man. He is the God-man, and he, is, he has the power to turn a stone into bread. And the devil is attacking Jesus' identity here. Do you hear him say, if you're the Son of God? If, if you're the Son of God. Why would your Father let you be hungry like this? Jesus, if you're the Son of God, why would the Father plan for this? You don't need to do this. You don't have to obey him. Provide for yourself. This is an attack upon both natures of Jesus Christ. First, the human nature. At first glance, it's confusing because it's not sinful to eat when you're hungry. It's not sinful. And it's also not sinful for Jesus to miraculously make food because we see him doing that in the Gospels. But since God the Father required this fast of Jesus... It would have been sinful for him to break that fast. It's as if God had said to Jesus, do not eat. Have you ever heard that before in Holy Scripture? Genesis chapter 2, 16 and 17, God tells Adam, And the Lord commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it you will surely die. Satan 
is saying to Adam and Eve, why would God withhold good from you? Look, this fruit is good to eat. It's desirable to eat. You could be like God. And the devil is saying to Jesus, look, why would your father want you to be hungry? You are royalty. You're the son of God, right? Shouldn't the red carpet be laid out for you? Didn't, isn't it a rumor that you are his beloved son? Why would he allow you to have a need go unmet? You don't need to wait on him. You could be like him. Provide for yourself. Secondly, and even more sinisterly, he attacks the divine nature. The Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are always united with a single will, a single purpose. The Trinity always moves and acts in unity with one another, and the devil is trying to separate their perfect unity that exists in the Godhead. He's trying to get to Jesus to abuse his power, because he's not just a man, he is the God-man, and to rebel against his Father's will for his life. Jesus, 40 days earlier, just heard the voice of his Father at his baptism, declaring from heaven that he is his beloved Son in whom he is well pleased. Will Jesus, in his caloric deficit, weakened by his condition, know the voice of his Father? Or will he confuse the devil's voice with his father's voice? Whose voice will he obey? What is Jesus' response? I'll tell you my response. When I'm hungry, I am tempted to deify my need. Say it again. When I am hungry, I am tempted to elevate that need and deify that need. We have needs and it is sin to get those needs, and like if we sin to get those needs or sin because we don't get those needs, we've elevated that need and deified that need. I thank, thank God. My wife and children are not here because the, they have fallen with the sickness. I'm sure I'm next, right? I don't know. But thank God she married me because one time she, when we were dating, and listen, it's just the reality of the world. When you're dating, you're on your best behavior, Right? You should always be on your best behavior, people, right? But when you're dating, you're on your best behavior. And my wife got to see, I understood now what it takes to let the sinful nature come out of me. And here were the circumstances, okay? She took me to the mall with no purpose. Just to meander around the mall. Listen, people, when I got to go to a store or to a mall, I have a singular purpose, in and out. I don't deviate from that plan. I have, like, blinders on. I go to the store, I leave the store. She didn't know this. She didn't know this about me. I didn't know this about me. This testing revealed what was in my heart. I don't like to meander ever in life. But then it was over lunchtime, and there was no plan for lunch. Those are the circumstances that the inner beast will come out. I was not fun to be around. I was irritable. I was angry. Thank God she stuck with me, right? So what is Jesus' response? He doesn't deify his need. Jesus is not controlled by his needs. Jesus is not a slave to them. 
He is full of the Spirit. He is led by and submits to his Father. He is perfected in his humble submission to the suffering required of him to glorify his Father and to save us. He keeps his Father at the center. Jesus answered, it is written. It is written. Throughout his temptations, Jesus found his answers in the Scriptures. He armed himself with the sword of the Spirit for his battle with the devil. Now, all three Scriptures that Jesus quotes in the temptations come from Deuteronomy. And it's important to understand the context of Deuteronomy. It's Moses giving the instructions to the second generation Israelites past the Exodus to say, don't repeat the sins of your parents. Don't repeat the sins of your parents as you enter the promised land. And so listen to Jesus. Um, He quotes a portion of Deuteronomy uh, 3, but I'm going to read Deuteronomy 8, 1 through 3. The whole commandment that I command you today, you shall be careful, God, God says through Moses to the people, you shall be careful to do that you may live and multiply and go in the and possess the land that the Lord swore to give your fathers. And you shall remember the the whole way that the Lord your God has led you these 40 years in the wilderness. Listen, pause here for a second. You shall remember the whole way that the Lord your God has led you these 40 years in the wilderness. Present needs tempt us to forget God's loving provisions in the past. When we have pressing needs... We are tempted to forget God's loving provision over a lifetime, to sin to make that need ours, or to sin because we don't have it. And and then it goes on to say that he might humble you. What's God trying to do to his people? Humble them. Testing you to know what what was in your heart, whether you would keep his commandments or not. And, And he humbled you and let you hunger and fed you with manna which you did not know, nor did your fathers know, that he might make you know that man does not live by bread alone, but, every, but man lives by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. This temptation is not about bread. It's about trust. It's not about bread. It is about trust. God uses the bread to expose the unfaithfulness of the Israelites in the wilderness. Will Israel trust the bread or the God who is choosing to give them life every day? And they trusted the bread and complained about the bread. Israel in the wilderness needed to trust God for their sustenance. So must God's son, Jesus. What was in Israel's heart? Faithlessness. What was in the heart of Christ? True, humble dependency and unwavering faith. In his father. Thank you, Jesus. The faithful and true son obeys the father's commandments to live by every word that comes from his mouth. Jesus would soon teach us to pray, give us this day our daily bread. He would soon teach us to seek first the kingdom of God, and Jesus does both. Jesus would not use his messianic anointing to satisfy his own needs, but rather would submit to his Father's will. Listen, have you made the decision? Have you made the decision 
to live by every word of the mouth of God. Have you made that decision? I, I, I believe God's word is calling us today to submit ourselves to the full will of God. This would change our, our morning quiet times, would it not? We're not just eating our daily breadcrumb. We're coming and saying, this is my very life. I need every word here. Are you convinced that you need every word from the mouth of God to be sustained? We need to be reminded of that. God's calling you to that today. You need every word that comes from the mouth of God. His word and his will are what sustain the soul. More than bread. More than bread. I'm going to, uh, to pray. I'm going to call you to pray, to depend upon God for my daily bread. We are so blessed in this country to not worry about our daily bread, a lot of us. But are we thankful for the daily bread? And do we, do we trust in our income? Do we trust what is in our bank account? Or do we understand that everything we have is a gift from the Father? To trust in Him, not what we possess. Approach situations in life knowing that they are tests and trials to grow in our faithfulness to God. Because do you know that in this trial, God is exposing in the Israelites he exposed in Adam a lack of covenant faithfulness. And then he would call them to be more faithful. He exposes them in the test and he's calling them to more faithfulness. And that's why we'll see next week why it's so wicked to try to test God because he is absolutely faithful. And he can't be more faithful. And he has proven it. So what are the tests that you've endured? What is it exposing in you of where you are weak? We hide from those. And I'm telling you to embrace them, to see the deficiency of the character of Christ in us, the church, and progressively be sanctified, to keep going and seeing what God is graciously exposing in us to make us more like Jesus Christ. And if you're an unbeliever in here, if you're not in the family of God, would you not see? As C.S. Lewis says that he whispers to us in our pleasures, but he shouts in our pain. What if this testing and time of trial in your life, God has put in your life to show you that you need him? That you need God. Would you come today and receive life? What bodily urges are you tempted to deify? What needs in your life do you elevate that you will sin to get or sin if you do not get them? Another way of looking at them, at these are, what serpents have you allowed in your garden? What serpents have you allowed in your garden? And we need to see them and remove them by repentance. And faith in Christ. The, the king and his kingdom are here. Do not allow these serpents in your garden to tempt you. Remove them through repentance. Our sins, they are many. His mercy is more. Do not allow them any longer by God's grace in your garden. Just think, 
The devil would seek to accuse you before God. What would the Spirit of God do with your sins? So the devil would accuse you. What would the Spirit of God have you to do with your sins? He would lovingly convict you of your sin and of God's righteousness and of the coming judgment. The Holy Spirit would give you a godly sorrow that would lead you to repentance. The Holy Spirit would lead you to a place that you despise and you hate your sin. And you turn from, as the scripture calls, as a dog returns to his vomit, so a man returns to his sin. That we, that we turn from our vomit and see and behold Jesus. That's what the Spirit of God would have you do today. To turn from your sin and temptations and behold the glory and the goodness of Jesus Christ. That's what the Holy Spirit would have you to do. And I pray that you do not harden your heart against him today. Pray, as Jesus would teach us, lead me not into temptation, but deliver me from the evil one. What is truly in a man will be exposed through trial. Our true character is exposed through testing. What do our trials say about us? What do our trials say about Christ? Here's what the the trials of Christ says about him. He is pure. He is true. He is worthy. He is strong. He is glorious. He is resolute. He is unconquerable. He is victorious. He is precious beyond compare. Everyone has a plan until they get punched in the face. Satan went out to do the punching and got blasted. Christ is the victor of, of round one. Spoiler alert, he will be the victor of round two and three. He is not just a victor. He's not just a victor. He is not only heaven's champion, he is our victor. He is our champion. When we place our faith in Christ and submit our lives to him, we are put in union with Jesus, and he is in us, and we are in him. Listen to John 15, 4 through 9. Abide in me, Jesus says, and I in you. As a branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers, and the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire, and burned. If you abide in me, and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. By this my Father is glorified, that you bear much fruit and prove to be my disciples. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. Do you see that we are in Christ? He is the vine, we are the branch. His life is to be expressed in our life. Galatians 2.20 says it very clearly. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. We are forever connected to him. He is our head, we are his 
body. He is in us and we are in him. That is a glorious truth. You know what that means? He has conquered the evil one, therefore you have conquered the evil one because of your union with him. Do you understand that? The victory has been decisive and it is over. And that means that we can overcome sin and temptation more and more in this life. You are not imprisoned if you're in Christ. Listen and receive this word from God. In 1 John 2, 12 through 14, I am writing to you, little children, because your sins are forgiven for his name's sake. I'm writing to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. I'm writing to you, young men, because you have overcome the evil one. I write to you, children, because you know the Father. I write to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. I write to you, young men, because you are strong, and the word of God abides in you, and you have overcome the evil one. How? Through union with our champion. Through union with the victor. Don't lay down, church. Christ has won. We are in union with him, and so we have one. Now display that in your life. I, I want the mindset today to be, because again, in two weeks, I'm going to spend a whole week of how do we apply this to our lives. But I want the mindset to be right now, I will not be a slave any longer to the oppressor of sin and Satan because of the victory of Christ. So many of us live conquered by sin and temptation. No longer. Christ has won. And if you're without Christ, I pray today you come to him. Since he is under our, since the devil is under the heel of Christ, don't let him dominate you anymore. Spurgeon said this, I'll I'll close with this, on this text. Jesus was full of the Holy Ghost and then led into the wilderness to be tempted. You would not expect that. It is a sadder thing to be led into the wilderness when you are not filled with the Spirit. And a sadder thing to be tempted when the Spirit of God is not resting upon you. The temptation of our Lord was not one to which He wantonly exposed himself. He was led by the Spirit into the wilderness. The Spirit of God may lead us where we shall have to endure trial. If he does so, we are safe. And we shall come off conquerors, even as our Master did. So church, we trust in him. We will overcome. If you are not yet in Christ... You are alone in your wilderness temptations. And you don't have to be any longer. Come to faith in Christ the victor. Let's pray. God, thank you. God, thank you for this morning. Lord Jesus, I ask in your name, on behalf of people in this room that I know in a crowd this size there, are, there will be many who are dominated by sin and temptation. 
Thank you that the devil can't make us do it, Lord. That he can tempt and tempt alone. His power is limited. The devil has overestimated his power, and I'm thankful that you are the champion. And I pray that, I pray that you rescue, that you rescue this morning sinners that are not yet yours and the church who are living imprisoned by sin. Thank you for overcoming on our behalf. In Jesus' name, amen. Now we're about to sing, All Glory Be to Christ. And after this, after the benediction, there's going to be a few families up here to pray over you after the service. If you want prayer, please come and have someone pray over you. If you just feel dominated, if you want uh, for someone to pray over you because you just can't pray right now, or whatever's going on in your life, we want to offer prayer to you after service. So there'll be some people.